Okay, well we're going through this period of uh, rather troubled times uh, in Israel's history, uh, focusing very much up until now on the northern kingdom. The focus of 1 Kings and 2 Kings uh, typically is the northern kingdom of Israel as opposed to the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah, you remember that the kingdoms divided, Israel divided into the north and south, uh, around about 987 um, BC after the time of Solomon. And we've been tracking through, primarily looking at the Northern Kingdom. We're going to look a little bit um, this morning uh, as we focus a little bit of what's going on down south because um, there's been a lot of changes going on and there's so much of what we've been looking at that now is going to overflow into the Southern Kingdom because of Ahab, uh, this king that we've been looking at and his lineage and dynasty and so on. So uh, let's just bow our hearts as we come before God's word again together. Well, Father, as we come before your word now, Lord, we pray that we would have hearts that are open. And Lord, we just want you to be able to speak to us. We don't want to put blocks in the way, Lord, and, and stop up our ears. We want to hear your voice. And so, Father, just help us now to, to hear you, hear what you have to say through these things. Lord, we thank you that you have preserved this historical account. But Lord, we recognize that your word is more than just an historical record. The Lord, your word it says, says of itself that it is living and powerful. And that these things were written for our advantage. Lord, that we would be perfect and complete. Lord, that we would have peace. And so, Father, as we read these things, speak to us, we pray. Show us the application to our own lives in these things this morning. As we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've made it as far as chapter 10. So let's jump straight in this morning. And we read, And Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote letters and sent to Samaria unto the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders and to them that brought up Ahab's children, saying... Now before we go on and look at what he's about to say, just a little bit of background to remember. So Ahab has been the king. Uh, he's had his two sons, Ahaziah, who uh, didn't reign for very long, and then Jehoram. Jehoram's a terrible king again. Um, and both those, both those sons had had a little time ruling. Um, Jehoram's reign had come to the end. Jehu had been one of his military generals has now effectively turned on him, this military coup, because uh, he's told by the Lord that he is going to be, Jehu is now going to be the king of Israel, and that he's put to put to an end the family and lineage of Ahab because of the wickedness that they brought upon the nation. Um, and we've seen already just how wicked Ahab was, and we'll see a bit more as we go through this morning. So that's the context of all of this. Um, and just to mention, these 70 children, um, some scholars think they were all Ahabs, which they may well have been, um, but it could also imply in the text that they could have been uh, grandchildren. Um, so these could have been the children um, of Ahaziah or of Jehoram as well. So uh, again, the, the, in Hebrew, there's no kind of word for grandfather and, and such like that. So um, you know, typically, if you talk about somebody's father, it could be actually their biological father, or it could be the grandfather. It depends on the context. Um, so we're talking not necessarily directly children of Ahab here, um, but quite possibly uh, grandchildren are implied in this as well. But um, certainly of his lineage. So these are the ones that are being addressed. Now, they'd been entrusted to the care of the rulers and the elders to educate them and prepare them for life as an heir to the throne. Now, of course, if you have 70 children, uh, it's very difficult to look after all of them. We have three. We struggle with that. Um, imagine 70 children and trying to look after them and discipline them and bring them up. So, and, and very much as we see even in royal families today, there's lots of people that are around that help uh, with bringing up of children. And so, exactly the same situation, there were rulers, there were elders here who were educating these young men um, for life as potentially the next king of Israel, because any of them may well have ended up in that position. And so that's what's going on. Ahab, of course, was trying to secure his own dynasty. You know, we've talked before about the importance of having a family name in Israel at this time. To have a, a lineage and to know that you would have children that were going to be sitting on the throne in this case, or even just a family name that would continue. That was so important. It was like a status thing as much as anything. You know, once again, I have to mention the name that we've been given. You and I have been given the name that is above all names. That's the name that we get to, to have. We can call ourselves Christians. We can call ourselves by the name of Jesus Christ. What a privilege. You know, and, and so we've got this name that, that we can have ourselves. Uh, and just as they had, we've been given this, this incredible privilege. We looked at that uh, in a bit more depth a few weeks back. 
But as we carry on, just to give you an idea of where we're looking, this is the divide between the north and south. This bit in the, the lower part of the map here, this is Judah. Encompasses the area of Benjamin as well. They would have been a kind of a part of this uh, southern area, southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom. All this area up here, and so typically on the area of the west of the the Jordan River, and obviously bordering onto the Mediterranean. And then you've got Samaria here. This is the capital, and then above it up here you've got Jezreel. Okay, and all of this is in the kind of the, up here. This is the uh, Valley of Megiddo. And there's actually the place called Megiddo up here as well, just north of Jezreel. Um, and of course that's where we get the phrase or word Armageddon from. Because it will be in this valley, eventually, that runs down here in Israel, that the massed assembled armies of Antichrist will gather. It's a staging area. The battle doesn't actually take place there. A lot of people talk about the battle of Armageddon. Uh, well actually Armageddon is a staging area. It's where the troops will gather and then they will from that point set to go and engage Jesus Christ in battle. I can't think of anything more foolish uh, than trying to fight against the one that holds everything together. Even down to the subatomic level. Uh, that's what the Bible says Jesus does. And people are going to make war with Jesus. Uh, incredible. But that's what we're told in Revelation. And um, By God's grace if he tarries we'll uh, end up there no doubt and study through that in detail. So... Verse 2, now as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, a fence city also, and armour, look even out the best, and meetest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. So this is really a challenge that Jehu's laying down. He said, okay, you've got all of the descendants, all the sons of, of Ahab that are there, choose the best. Give us your best shot, is really what he's saying. You know, put them on a, a chariot, you know, by all means, your army, whatever you can amass, and you come out and you fight me. And let's see how we do, shall we? So that's really the challenge that's being laid down. And uh, <laughs> he's assuming, of course, that the elders here are going to be loyal to the sons of Ahab, who they've been bringing up. And again, just proposing that one of these heirs is going to be appointed to the throne. So, we read on. But they were exceedingly afraid and said... Behold, two kings stood not before him. How then shall we stand? Okay, now if you remember, uh, we've already seen Jehoram and Ahaziah, the king of Judah. So the king of Israel, who was reigning, has just been put to death. And then Judah, who'd come and allied himself with him. Last week we were looking at that. Both of them have been put to death by Jehu. So we read on. And he that was over the house and he that was over the city, the elders also, and the bringers up of the children, sent to Jehu, saying, We are thy servants, those we surrender, effectively, and will do all that thou shalt bid us. We will not make any king. Do thou which is good in thine eyes. So simply they just effectively pledge their allegiance to Jehu and say, Look, we're yours. You know, we're, we're you know, totally on your side. Tell us what you want. And then he wrote a letter the second time to them, saying, if you be mine, okay, so this is like a test now. If you will hearken unto my voice, take you the heads of the men, your master's servants, and come to me to Jezreel by tomorrow this time. What he's saying is he wants them to kill the sons of Ahab and effectively bring their heads as a token of their allegiance. So this is what he's asking him to do. Now, we read uh, verse six, the second half of verse 6. Now the king's sons, being 70 persons were with the great men of the city which brought them up. And it came to pass when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slew 70 persons and put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jezreel. A rather messy affair in a sense, but we read on verse 8. And there came a messenger and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entering in of the gate until the morning. So Jehu says, Go and put all these heads in this big pile by the gate. Very, uh, Horrible thing to look at. So uh, this has two purposes, all these decapitated heads. And this is why Jehu asks it. One, being a visual demonstration, is going to strike fear into anybody who's now thinking of opposing Jehu. As they look at not just the, the people that have been killed, these sons of Ahab, but the fact that these other elders and leaders of the nation have now sided with Jehu. Anybody's going to think twice about rising up against him. But also symbolically, because the gates of the city... It represented the council, the, the authority of the city. It was, it was a demonstration very much that the city's leaders were with him as well. Just one aside, Jesus in the New Testament speaks of the fact that the gates of hell 
will not prevail. Now, we're not talking about physical gates or anything. People sometimes get confused by that verse. What God is saying, what Jesus was saying, is the councils of hell will not prevail. Jesus was talking about building his church. And the councils of hell will not prevail against that which Jesus is doing. And that, that's what it means. The, council, the, the gates, again, representative of the council. There's another example of it in the Old Testament where Samson carries the gates of the city up to the top of the hill and so on. It's just a demonstration that he's had victory over their councils, their decisions and so on. And it came to pass in the morning they went out and stood and said to all the people, You be righteous, behold, I conspired against my master and slew him. But who slew all these? What he's saying is, I want you to decide. Look at this. Now, probably mindful of Jezebel's words to Zimri. If you remember last week, as Jehu rides in into Jezreel, um, Jezebel looked out the window, and uh, this is back in chapter 9, verse 31, said, um, And as Jehu entered in at the gate, she said, Has Zimri peace who slew his master? She challenged him and said, this individual back in Israel's history, this king who'd reigned for just a week, said he killed his master and then he was deposed. And she's challenging Jehu saying, you think you're going to get away with this, is really what she was saying. And so now, possibly mindful of that, Jehu tries to calm the people down a little bit and trying to get some sort of um, uh, semblance of law and order established under his uh, reign now. Um, And anybody that was thinking of challenging his authority... It's a challenge saying, look, look at the situation. What he's saying is he's calling attention to the fact that the elders and leaders had killed Ahab's sons. So he was not alone in his disdain for the dynasty of Ahab. You see, they were very quick to give up these sons of Ahab. And it just shows that they had no real regard for them. You know, it wasn't as if they were, you know, fighting for the cause. They, they were quite happy to pledge allegiance. And all of this really because of the wickedness of Ahab and his descendants and so on. <clears throat> now, verse 10 carries on. Know now that there shall fall unto the earth nothing of the word of the Lord which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done that which he spoke by his servant Elijah. Okay, so first of all, nothing of the word of the Lord is going to fail. You know, just for a moment, just as a going off on a very brief tangent, what a great comfort, just that phrases that we have recorded, that nothing of God's word will fail. It's so important to us that we trust a God who is never going to let us down, who's never going to do anything contrary to his word. And the promises, and we started this year, didn't we, looking at the promises of God, those great promises we've got, God will never break them. Because God is a God who delights in keeping his word. And the Lord has said that he's going to protect us, he's going to watch over us, he's going to bring us safely, ultimately, to that place where we will be joined to Jesus as, as his bride. And we have this great eternity ahead of us. You know, we don't have to worry about our salvation. You know, I get to speak to people of other religions and one of the challenges often is brought to them about well how do you know you're saved how do you know you've got your eternity is secure and none of them can give a good answer to that question they all hope they might be particularly with the muslims i speak to you know they do all sorts of things and again recently they've just celebrated ramadan and fasted for 30 days um, again, just you know, during the, the daylight hours. But you know, they've done this because it's a, they think it gives them a bit of, kind of leverage with their God. Their God's happy because they've done this thing. Well, you know, what about all the bad things? How are the, what about, they've got to be paid for. They've got to be taken into account. And they have no assurance of their salvation. None of them know for sure that they are saved. And it's the same in any other religion you look at. You've got no guarantee. You know, even if you look at you know, some of the uh, Eastern religions, some of those that hold on to the idea of reincarnation, the idea that if you've lived a good life, you'll come back as something better in the next life. I mean, there's no guarantee. And who makes that decision? Who's judging that? Where, where, where are the rules for that? Well, for us as Christians, we have a guarantee. And we've actually been given, it's not just a, a something written in text that we hope might be a guarantee. We, we're told in the New Testament that we've been given the Holy Spirit as the seal of that promise. So as a believer, when you become a Christian, God's Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you. 
You know, it's a difference between experience and just belief. Uh, Ray Comfort uses the example of a, a young child who looks at a fire and wonders if the fire is really hot. And you can tell that child all day long if that fire is hot. <laughs> and a recent experience of this, actually we're at a barbecue at my, my sister's back in Deal uh, last weekend, I think it was. And the barbecue was there. And it had been cooling down for some time. But uh, as Connie was walking past it, and we'd been saying for ages, don't touch it, it's very hot. She just went out. And she only just touched it, but it was hot enough for her to realise that it was hot. Suddenly she went from that position of maybe believing something to knowing it. You know, and that's the difference. You know, for us as Christians, we don't just believe it, we know it. Why? Because we've experienced it. It's real. It's not just some thing that we've read in a book. It's something that is very real in our lives and we've had it proven to us by God himself. So again, nothing of God's words will fail. What a great comfort that should be to us. The second thing that we see here is that this is a prophecy that had been spoken by Elijah that Ahab's sons would be destroyed. And if we look back in 1 Kings 19, so back into 1 Kings, uh, we just pick up verse 15, it says, And the Lord said unto him, Go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou come, anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. Now, we saw that happen a couple of weeks ago in our study. Prophesied sometime before that. And then verse 16, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Mechola shall thou anoint to be prophet in thy room, and it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Hazel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. God making this absolutely clear that judgment was coming on Ahab's family because of his wickedness. And again, we read in chapter 21 of 1 Kings, verse 17 the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down. To meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, whether he's gone down to possess it. You remember this account of Ahab who'd murdered, had murdered by Jezebel, his wife, effectively. Uh, this innocent man, Naboth, had conspired. They got some leaders and so on to speak against him. And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. Now again, we've seen that already fulfilled. And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered, I found thee, because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon thee, and will take away thy posterity, and will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall, and them that is shut up and left in Israel. So again, this promise that all of the male descendants of uh, Ahab would be cut off. And I will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah, for the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger, and made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel also he spoke, spoke the Lord, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. And him that dies of Ahab in the city, the dogs shall eat. And him that dies in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. So this promise, once again, of judgment. And I mean, we've seen, and we saw so many times going through First Kings, how God gave Ahab opportunity to repent. So many times. Yeah, the incredible situation, the, the king of Ben-Hadid at that time, king of Samaria, comes down. And the city's besieged and everything else. And you think, well, that's, that's it. God's now going to use us to judge him. And he still sends the prophet to go and speak and say, you know what? God is going to deliver you. Time and time again, he had that opportunity. But one of the things that you read in scripture is that eventually people run out of room. People can try living their lives their way for so long. They can try running away from God. And God will be gracious and merciful and he makes the sun shine upon those that are his, those that are not, you know, the wicked and the righteous. But eventually, judgment will come. And this world is currently going to go blindfold into a time that the Bible speaks about as being the worst time the world has ever known. You know, we think of the conflicts that we've seen. None of those will even compare to that which is coming. And it will be a time when God will pour out his wrath on this world. On anybody who has chosen to reject him. And just as Ahab here serves as a good example of those that reject God. And Galatians 6 verse 7 just reminds us. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. 
How many people in this world think they can mock God? We've got a particular group of people that have taken the rainbow and they now use it for their banner. That rainbow is a sign of God's grace and mercy. And they take it and they mock God with it. We're told, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. It's a very stern warning. We're told in Psalm 34, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry. What a great comfort for us. But then we're told, verse 16, the face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. And we see it being played out here with Ahab. In Psalm 109, we read, Let his posterity be cut off against speaking of the wicked. And in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. And this is written in the time of David. We've now gone on from David through to Solomon and then the various two kingdoms that have come from this point and we've gone down. So we're looking a good 100, 150 years onwards now from the time that these things were written. And we're told of those that would be wicked, that their posterity would be cut off, that the next generation, let their names be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered with the Lord, and let not the sins of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth, because that he remembered not to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man. Once again, we think of Naboth. That he may even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come unto him. As he delighted not in blessing, so let it be far from him. So we carry on, verse 11 of Second Kings, chapter 10. So Jehu slew all that remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men, and his kinsfolk, and his priests, until he left him none remaining. And he arose and departed and came to Samaria. And as he was at the shearing house in the way, Jehu met with the brethren of Ahaziah, king of Judah. Now, they don't yet know that he's died, obviously. And said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the brethren of Ahaziah, and we go down to salute the children of the king and the children of the queen. Now, just in case you missed that reference there, we're talking of Ahab and Jezebel. The children of the king, King Ahab, and the children of the queen, Jezebel. Of course, the king that they think is still on the throne was Jehoram, one of Ahab's children. And of course, we know that Ahaziah, the king of Judah, had gone up and allied himself with him. And so they're now on their way to go and salute this wicked king and this wicked queen that had led so many away from God and had killed so many. And again, just remember that the sons of Ahab, these are innocent individuals because these also would have been party to putting to death the prophets of the Lord. You see, the queen, Queen Jezebel, had had killed, as far as Elijah was concerned, he thought all of the Lord's prophets and these children would have been part of that team, of, if you like, that have been carrying out the, the commands of the queen. So they weren't innocent. They were guilty and they were wicked. They, you know, the, the Bible speaks of, uh, back in Genesis, of capital punishment, effectively. You know, if you take a man's life, then your life will be taken. Now, we have a very different view in our world today. But that was God's view, because God had created life sacred. And somebody that would... Take, take away life without a cause was to be judged. Verse 14 carries on. And he said, take them alive. So they're thinking, oh, look, we're safe. And then he says, and they took them alive and slew them at the pit of the shearing house. Even two and forty men, forty-two men, neither left the any of them. Again, these are people that have totally rejected God. They're going up to worship a pagan God that has led his nation to the depths of despair. He's removed any kind of semblance of worship of God, even though God has been gracious to him, as we've seen. And when he was departed thence, he lighted on Jehonadab. So he comes across a man by the name of Jehonadab, who we're told is the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he saluted him and said to him, Is thine heart right, as my heart is with thy heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. He says, If it be, give me thine hand in he gave him his hand and he took him up into the chariot and said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So then they made him ride in his chariot. So this individual, Jehonadab, now we actually come across him, if you want to look at this, 
There's a kind of reference in Jeremiah 35, in verses 3 to 10. Um, this, we actually see the descendants of this man, Jehonadab, and we're told that the, there's a, a situation occurs and um, Jeremiah effectively has wine set before them and they, they choose not to eat. They say, we will not drink wine for Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us saying you should drink no wine, neither you nor your sons forever. And he goes on, neither shall you build any house nor sow seed nor plant vineyard uh, nor have uh, any, but in all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you be strangers. And he goes on, these were individuals that loved God, that cared about God. They cared about the, the plight of the nation that had rejected God, and their descendants of this man that we're looking at now, Jehonadab, a godly man, a good man. And so he steps up into the chariot with Jehu. Jehu makes this interesting comment that, come and see my zeal for the Lord. Now we're going to see in a moment that Jehu didn't love God. He didn't really have a heart for God. But he was very passionate about doing things for God. As we see here. Come and see my zeal for the Lord. There's a lot of Christians that are very active. Very keen to do things. But they don't have a heart for God. You know we've got a great example in the New Testament with Mary and with Martha. We have one individual. So intent on serving, on doing things. And the other one just wants to be at Jesus' feet and worship. You know, sometimes we equate doing things with being successful in ministry. Sometimes just stopping and getting on our knees before him is what he wants of us. You know, it's a privilege to serve God. But once again, let me remind you, God does not need you. You know, the kingdom of God will not be in trouble if you don't do the thing that God's called you to do. Because God... Owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God has resources beyond anything we can imagine. He doesn't need us. As I said before, it's like when we try and ask our, for my case, daughters to help mow the lawn. Mow the lawn. It's because He wants to let us help. It's not because it helps Him, you know. And God does things like that. He allows us to help and serve Him. But sometimes we think that the purpose is doing things, and clearly. This individual, Jehu, was one of those. He was very, very zealous for the Lord while he was doing things. But he had no real regard or love for God. So just let me warn you, whatever ministry you feel maybe God's called you to, always stop, always check. Is God number one? Don't let that ministry or serving God become more important than God himself. So verse 17, we carry on. And when he came to Samaria, he slew all that remained unto Ahab in Samaria, till he had destroyed him according to the saying of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. And Jehu gathered all the people together and said unto them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu shall serve him much. Now, this little cunning plan that Jehu has, because he wants to, I'm use his expression, smoke out all those that are following Baal, Baal, however you wish to pronounce now therefore, he says, call unto me all the prophets of Baal and all his servants and all his priests. Let none be wanting, for I have a great sacrifice to do to Baal. Whosoever shall be wanting, he shall not live. In other words, if people don't come, they're going to be put to death. But Jehu did it in subtlety, to the intent that he might destroy the worshippers of Baal. Now again, this is something that the Lord had commissioned him to do. Jehu said, proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal, and they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent through all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came. It's like a big festival, a celebration. This is Baal worship. Now, they probably were hearing news that Ahab's dynasty had been wiped out. And this new king had come to the throne and all these worshippers of Baal are probably thinking, uh-oh, what does that mean for us? And suddenly they get the invitation, come because Jehu wants to invite you to this wonderful celebration where we're going to worship Baal together. So come on, let's go, let's go. They're all coming from all the parts of Israel. And Jehu sent through all Israel and all the worshippers of Baal came so that there was not a man left that came not. And they came into the house of Baal, this temple that they built. And the house of Baal was full from one end to another. And he said unto him that was over the vestry, Bring forth vestments for the worshippers of Baal. And he brought them forth vestments. In other words, they were getting clothed, marked effectively, so that we can see which ones they are. And Jehu went, and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, into the house of Baal, and said unto the worshippers of Baal, Search and look that there be here with you none of the servants of the Lord, but the worshippers of Baal only. 
Let's get the worshippers of God out of here. Just want the worshippers of Baal. And when they were, and when they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings, Jehu appointed eighty men, fourscore men, without, and said, "If any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escape, he that lets him go, his life shall be for the life of him." And he came, and it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, "Go in and slay them. Let none come forth." And they smote them with the edge of the sword. And the guard and the captains cast them out and went into the city out of the house of Baal. And they brought forth the images out of the house of Baal and burned them. And they broke down the images of Baal and broke down the house of Baal and made it a draft house unto this day. Uh, in case you're not sure what that is, and some translations will translate that slightly differently, uh, it's making a toilet until this day. That's the implication. This place is just going to become a refuse heap of the worst possible kind, uh, never to be used again to worship Baal. Now, let me just ask you this question. Is Jehu being cruel in doing all of this? You know, is this mass slaughter justified? Let's ask that question. Because there's a lot of people that read the Bible and they get upset about these kind of things. And they say, but that's, that's not right. How can a loving God allow these things to happen? Well, once again, it's all about your perspective. You see, with the benefit of hindsight, would we act differently? You know, you think about people like Hitler, Stalin, and some of these other world dictators that have done so much damage, killed so many people. You know, should if we were knowing what we know now in that situation and we had the opportunity, would we call for the death penalty for those kind of people? If you knew what they were going to go on and do. You see, God is outside of time. God knows the end from the beginning. And when God says things, it's because he has all knowledge. And God is all wise. And God is good. It's one of the the basic tenets of scripture. Psalm 119 verse 68. God is good and does good. God cannot do anything that is not good because God is good. His whole character and nature is goodness. Once again, that verse I mentioned earlier from Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. Whoso sheds a man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Again, these servants of Baal, just along with, as I mentioned earlier, with the, the sons of Ahab and Jezebel, had killed the prophets of the Lord at Jezebel's command. So they weren't just innocent people. And they totally rejected God as well. We just ask you the question, is an amputation a good thing? No. It's a, it's a tragedy, isn't it? Whenever an amputation takes place, you know, you never want to lose a limb or something. Why, why do we do it? To save the body, to save the rest of the body. You don't do it because you don't want that thing. It's done because we know it's necessary for the sake of the body. You know, it's the same idea, and we have it used a, new, a few times in the New Testament, the idea of vomiting. You know, when you're sick, your body is getting rid of the poison. A healthy body rejects poison all the time. And scriptures replete with the command not to allow the wicked to live. Now, sometimes we get maybe a little uncomfortable. If you read through Psalms, there are some Psalms that are quite violent. But you see, we're looking at the side, this side of eternity. If we could see what God sees, if we could see the real damage that is being done to people... On an eternal level, we would have a very different view of things. But we just look at the here and now. We don't look at eternity. We just look at you know, people's physical state. We don't look at their spiritual state. We don't look at the damage that people like Ahab and Jezebel did to a countless number of people living in Israel at that time who led them away from their possibility of an eternity with God and they've condemned them to an eternity in hell. How can a loving God turn away from that? We're told in Corinthians, your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. The context of this is talking about problems within a church. But the same thing applies. You know, you can't just tolerate something that is not good. Oh, but we've got to be loving and kind. No, Jesus says we're to be firm. 
and we are to judge within a, a body of believers. And if somebody offends, if somebody does something that is openly wrong and is unwilling to repent, then we have to deal with it. Because otherwise, everybody could get affected. You know, the same idea we see throughout Scripture. You've got to take out that which is cancerous to allow the body to live. Verse 28 we read, Thus Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. Howbeit, from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Remember that little refrain time and time again we read this. Jehu departed not from after them to wit the golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan. So we find that Jehu carries on worshipping these golden calves. Now those calves, if you remember, have been established just like the one that after they made when they came out of Egypt. They said, this is, this is God. This is our representation of God. They weren't trying to worship a different God. They were just trying to worship their God in a way that they could see. Something that was a bit more tangible for them. But it's called idolatry. It's making a God in our image, a God to suit ourselves. And people do this all the time. And you often hear people say, my God would do this, or my God wouldn't do that. It's idolatry. Your God doesn't exist. He can't do those things. These gods were just creations of man's hands. They had no power, no authority. It was foolish that people would worship them. But Jehu, although he gets rid of the prophets of Baal, still leaves these idols, these golden calves, set up one in Dan, right at the north of Israel, and one in Bethel, just kind of just above the border of the, the southern kingdom. Hosea 8 is interesting in regard to this. Picking up verse 4, it says, They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Of their silver and their gold have they made them idols, that they may be cut off. Thy calf, that's what we're talking about, O Samaria, has thee cast off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be before they attain to innocency? For from Israel... Was it also the workman made it? Therefore, it is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. God speaking of their idolatry, speaking of these things, these kings that had come onto the throne. And God says, for they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It has no stalk. The bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, the strangers shall swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the Gentiles as a vessel wherein is no pleasure. Scary words, because we'll see in a moment I'll show you that Hosea is prophesying just a short time after these things. But speaking of what was going to happen to Israel on account of their sin and the judgment that God would bring upon them as a nation. And the Lord said unto Jehu, Because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, and hast done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. So God makes Jehu this promise now. And we see this. If we look at the uh, list of all the kings that we've been going through, right back from Jeroboam, and then all the way down here. So the sons, and we've just gone through this, Omri, and then Ahab, Ahaziah, Jehoram, and now Jehu has come to the throne. And God says, your sons to the fourth generation, and look, one, two, three, four sons of Jehu, or son, grandson, great-grandson, great-great-grandson. Only six months though, but still God promises, and he keeps his promises. And interestingly enough, notice again, we're in this time here, the days of Jehu, and just in a short while, Hosea is going to come on the scene, whose prophecy we've just read, speaking about their wickedness, because they'd worshipped these calves, because they'd gone off into idolatry, God was going to bring judgment, and they would be given over to the Gentiles. They'd be scattered around the world. We'll see many more of those prophecies as we carry on. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin it's just such a sad thing again notice his heart you know, his head was all in it he was quite happy to do things but his heart was not there technically Jehu did well he got rid of Ahab and the dynasty but it's in his heart he failed and that's the key thing this is why in the New Testament in the book of Romans 
We're told that salvation comes by confessing with our mouth and believing in our heart. A lot of people make a profession. They say, oh yeah, I want to follow Jesus. But they don't really believe it in their heart. There may be other people that believe it in their heart, but they're too afraid to confess it with their mouth. You need your head and your heart to be united. To confess with your lips. It's a willful decision. And then believe in your heart. And the wonderful promises is, anybody that does that, we're told, will be saved. Jehu here, unfortunately, was just halfway there. His head was fully engaged. He wanted to do these things, but his heart wasn't there. In those days, the Lord began to cut Israel short. Interestingly, because just as Hosea is going to prophesy, we start to see happening. And Hazel smote them and all the coasts of Israel. Now remember that prophecy about Hazel doing this. We've already read that. And now it's happening. From Jordan eastward and all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, the Reubenites, the Manassites, um, from Aror, which is by the river Arnon, even Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did... And all his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoaz, his son, reigned in his stead. And the time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. So it was a reasonably long reign compared to some of the kings of the northern kingdom. And Jehu reigns. Now, we're not going to go through all of chapter 11, but we see a very interesting thing develop and I just want to whet your appetite for a couple of weeks time when we pick this up again and that is we see played out in chapter 11 one of the themes that runs through the whole of scripture you see Satan hates man because man was given title to the earth God creates everything he creates it all wonderful it's all good he declares everything is good when he's finished creating everything. And then Satan's there thinking, who is God going to give this to? Who would the Lord like to honour apart from me? And then God says, I'm going to create man in my likeness, in my image. And Satan's taken aback. Because no angel is created in the image and likeness of God. And we read in Isaiah 14 that Satan wanted to be like God. Some people think that Satan was saying, I want to be God. No, he wasn't wanting to be God. He's not foolish. He wanted to be like God, like man had been. He wanted to be given this title and position that man had been to rule over God's creation. And so he rebels. Pride in his heart led him to rebel. We're told, Paul tells Timothy that that was Satan's error, Satan's sin. It was pride. And so as a result of that, Satan sets about and deceives Eve and Adam. Well, Adam actually willingly goes into the situation, but Eve is deceived. And as a result of this, Satan gains the title to the earth. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians 4.4 and elsewhere that Satan is the god of this world. Satan runs this world for now. God has kind of handed the keys over to Satan for now. What we read in the book of Revelation is when God will come back and say, thank you, they're mine. Because Jesus has now paid for them. At Calvary, Jesus paid not just for our sin, but for the title to the earth as well. There was a great example of this in the book of Ruth. In fact, the book of Ruth is one of the shortest, most beautiful summaries of Scripture. That you have this individual that had lost their land, and yet somebody, this kinsman redeemer, comes along who claims the land back for them, and then marries this bride. It's a wonderful picture of the whole of God's plan of redemption. But as a result, Satan knew right from the Garden of Eden that God was going to send a saviour. And so he becomes, and I've used this expression, I hope you don't mind the expression, but Satan becomes hell-bent on trying to stop the Messiah coming. He throws everything he can at this plan of God to try and prevent Jesus coming. This one who'd been promised right from Genesis 3.15. And he goes right from the start. You see, Satan doesn't know who it's going to be. So... Adam and Eve have their children, and there is conjecture that suggests that Cain and Abel were both twins, because in the the text we read that that Eve conceived and they bear one child and then bear another, and I think you'll agree that if you conceive once and bear twice, they're twins. It's normally the way it works. Um, So the, the suggestion is, which one of these? So we end up with, of course, Cain killing Abel. Same thinking, that's it, put a stop to that. 
But of course, that wasn't the end of the story. And then we see a little bit later on the corruption of Adam's line. And the whole world starts to become infiltrated with these giant beings. These angels that had come and produced offspring with the women of the earth. And the whole earth has become corrupt. And yet God, by his grace, sends a flood to save Noah and his family. The only ones who were pure. We're told that Noah was perfect in his generations. That just simply means he was genetically pure. All the way back to Adam. There was no contamination in his line. So God saves and Satan loses again. But then again, when God chooses Abraham and says, I want you to be the family through whom I'll bring my seed, well, Satan now knows where to target. And these other fallen angels start to inhabit the land. And for this reason, Abraham is taken out of the land for this period of 400 years. In fact, they sojourn in the land for a period of 215 years in total. And then for 215 years, they're down in Egypt. Some people think it's 400 years. We'll maybe look at that in detail some other time. But the total period of time from the giving of the promise to the return under Joshua, or to the return under Moses uh, out of uh, Egypt, is 430 years, a total period of time. We see the famine, of course, that then leads the children of Israel down into Egypt. So again, trying to stop you know, that whole situation with Jacob, the reason that they end up going down to Joseph for grain, because they were starving. Satan trying to stop this line from continuing. And then, of course, the male children in Exodus, we read, being thrown into the Nile by Pharaoh. Why? Because he wanted to stop the male line. He wanted to stop the possibility of the Messiah coming. And then the pursuit of Pharaoh afterwards, trying to destroy the nation. And it goes on. Even as they move into Canaan and these giant tribes are there trying to wipe them out. God gives them victory. And then against David's line repeatedly we see these attacks. and see these threats. Because David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is told that his family from within the nation of Israel will now be the family through whom the Messiah will come. And so now all the attacks come there. Jehoram killed all his brothers. We'll see that if by God's grace we move on to 2 Chronicles in our study um, Eventually then we'll see that there. But again, everyone's wiped out apart from one. The Arabians, in another attempt, slew all but Ahaziah. And then Athaliah, the one that we're going to be looking at in chapter 11, kills all of the royal seed. Again, she's the daughter of Jezebel. And Joash, this young baby, is preserved. And that's what we'll look at as we go on. But you know, Satan's attempt didn't finish there because it goes on. Hezekiah is about to be wiped out by the Assyrian army. And yet God provides an incredible miracle, victory to deliver them. Haman's attempt that we read about in the book of Esther that's led to the feast of Purim. So many of these things in the Bible we see. In fact, you've then got even more. You've got the situation um, with Antiochus Epiphanes. Not is recorded in Daniel, actually. Um, but subsequently, 167 BC, this individual that tries to wipe out the Jews, tries to destroy them, all attempts to stop the Messiah coming. But none of them are successful. And eventually Jesus is born. Although it's not easy. Joseph... Is not sure what should happen. If it had been announced, Mary could have been stoned. Mary could have been killed. Because potentially she'd have been pregnant before being married. God calms Joseph and says, don't worry. But then Herod tries to kill all the male children once the Messiah is born. Satan is desperate by this point. He has to stop the Messiah. At Nazareth, they take Jesus to the edge of this cliff. I've, I've been to the place where they think it is and it's a pretty sharp drop. And somehow Jesus just walks through the midst of them. Satan, again, trying to stop, trying to... He realizes it's too late, the Messiah's come, but now he's trying to kill Jesus. There's the very storms on the Sea of Galilee. That These trained sailors who were so used to that sea, they're terrified. These, I believe, are supernatural attempts, again by Satan. Jesus just takes authority, calms those storms. And then we finally get to the cross. And Satan thinks he's got... The victory. But three days later, Jesus raises from the dead. And Satan realizes he's lost. In 
condemning and killing Jesus, effectively Satan becomes guilty or becomes subject to that law that we read about earlier in Genesis. By taking somebody's life, you become guilty yourself. Satan now is a marked man, if I may put it that way. And it's now just a matter of time. Of course, Satan's not through and he's going to carry on. He knows that he's effectively lost the battle, but he's not going to give up easily. And in Revelation 12, we get a great summary of the fact that he'd been trying to kill the seed of the woman. But once this woman has given birth and the seed is caught up to heaven, Jesus taken back to the Father, he then turns his attention on the nation of Israel. Ever wondered why this little nation, one one thousandth of the world's population, are so hated by the world? Well, it's because they're just guinea pigs. The world, the, the politicians, the leaders of the nations, somebody else is pulling the strings. And it's Satan that wants to see Israel wiped out. Why? Because there's a great promise that we read in the book of Hosea. That Israel, God has said, have to cry out to their Messiah before he will return for them. Well, that's easy then. If you can destroy Israel, they can't cry out. But of course we know because it's recording God's word, that God will preserve Israel. He'll protect them. They'll be taken out into the wilderness and be protected for three and a half years from Antichrist and the armies of this world. It's going to get very rough and the days ahead for Israel are going to be a horrible, horrible experience for them. Worse than anything they've never ever known. Even worse than the Holocaust. But eventually Israel, this nation that we've been studying and looking at, this nation that had incurred God's wrath because of their rejection of him because of their following after these false gods and so on because of their idolatry God decreed that they'd be scattered around the world but he's also decreed that they would eventually be brought back to their homeland and one day they will cry out you see how incredible God's plan is as I say next time we'll look at this attempt of Satan through this daughter of Jezebel to, to wipe out this line. Yet you realize just how incredible it was through all of this opposition, all this minefield that Satan was laying down that Jesus came and then died on the cross to pay for your sin and mine so that we could sit here this morning and know with absolute assurance because of our experience, because the Holy Spirit has been given to us that we're saved. What a great God. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for these incredible truths that we see recorded. Father, just speak to us, we pray. Help us to understand, Lord, just how wonderful these things really are. And Father, help us to, Lord, just be grateful to you for what you've accomplished for us. Father, we want to live lives. Lord, that show that we're grateful. Lord, show that gratitude. Father, we recognize again that we need your grace. Lord, it's not just about having a head that is desiring to serve you and to do things, but it's having a heart that is changed. Lord, just as David prayed, Lord, we pray this morning, create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Lord, that we would love you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.